Chapter Seven, Part Four of How I Found Livingston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. How I Found Livingston: Travels, Adventures, and Discoveries in Central Africa, Including Four Months' Residence with Dr. Livingston, by Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter Seven, Part Four: Marenge Makali, Ugogo, and Uyanzi to Unyanyembe. At noon we resumed our march, the Wanyamwezi cheering, shouting, and singing, the Wangwana soldiers, servants, and pagazis vying with them in volume of voice and noise-making, the dim forest through which we were now passing resonant with their voices. The scenery was much more picturesque than any we had yet seen since leaving Bagamoyo. The ground rose into grander waves, hills cropped out here and there, great castles of cyanide appeared, giving a strange and weird appearance to the forest. From a distance it would almost seem as if we were approaching a bit of England as it must have appeared during feudalism. The rocks assumed such strange, fantastic shapes. Now they were round boulders raised one above another, apparently susceptible to every breath of wind. Anon they towered like blunt-pointed obelisks, taller than the tallest trees. Again they assumed the shape of mighty waves, vitrified. Here they were a small heap of fractured and riven rock, there they rose to the grandeur of hills. By five p.m. we had travelled twenty miles, and the signal was sounded for a halt. At one a.m., the moon being up, Hamad's horn and voice were heard throughout the silent camp, awakening his pagazis for the march. Evidently Sheikh Hamad was gone stark mad, otherwise why should he be so frantic for the march at such an early hour? The dew was falling heavily, and chilled one like a frost and an ominous murmur of deep discontent responded to the early call on all sides. Presuming, however, that he had obtained better information than we had, Sheikh Thani and I resolved to be governed as the events proved him to be right or wrong. As all were discontented this night, march was performed in a deep silence. The thermometer was at fifty-three degrees, we being about forty-five hundred feet above the level of the sea. The pagazis, almost naked, walked quickly in order to keep warm, and by doing so many a sore foot was made by stumbling against obtrusive roots and rocks, and treading on thorns. At three a.m. we arrived in the village of Unyambogi, where we threw ourselves down to rest and sleep until dawn should reveal what else was in store for the hard-dealt-with caravans. It was broad daylight when I awoke. The sun was flaring his hot beams in my face. Sheikh Thani came soon after to inform me that Hamad had gone to Kiti two hours since, but he, when asked to accompany him, positively refused, exclaiming against it as folly and utterly unnecessary. When my advice was asked by Thani, I voted the whole thing as sheer nonsense, and in turn asked him what a terrakeza was for. Was it not an afternoon march enough to enable caravans to reach water and food? Thani replied that it was. I then asked him if there was no water or food to be obtained in Unyambogi. Thani replied that he had not taken pains to inquire, but was told by the villagers that there was an abundance of Matamiya, Hindi, Maweri, sheep, goats, and chickens in their village at cheap prices, such as were not known in Ugogo. Well then, said I, if Hamad wants to be a fool and kill his bagazis, why should we? I have as much cause for haste as Sheikh Hamad. But Unyanyembe is far yet, and I am not going to endanger my property by playing the madman. As Thani had reported, we found an abundance of provisions at the village, and good sweet water from some pits close by. A sheep cost one chukka, six chickens were also purchased at that price, six measures of matama, maweri, or hindi were procurable for the same sum. 
In short, we were coming at last into the land of plenty. On the 10th June we arrived at Kiti, after a journey of four hours and a half, where we found the irrepressible Hamad halted in sore trouble. He who would be a Caesar proved to be an irresolute Anthony. He had to sorrow over the death of a favorite slave-girl, the loss of five dish-dashes, Arab shirts, silvered sleeve and gold-embroidered jackets, with which he had thought to enter Unyanyembe in state, as became a merchant of his standing, which had disappeared with three absconding servants, besides copper trays, rice and pilau dishes, and two bales of cloth with runaway Wangwani pagazis. Salim, my Arab servant, asked him, "'What are you doing here, Sheikh Hamad? I thought you were well on the road to Unyanyembe.' Said he, "'Could I leave Thani, my friend, behind?' Kiti abounded in cattle and grain, and we were able to obtain food at easy rates. The Wakimbu, emigrants from Ukimbu, near Ururi, are a quiet race, preferring the peaceful arts of agriculture to war, of tending their flocks to conquest. At the least rumor of war they remove their property and family, and emigrate to the distant wilderness, where they begin to clear the land and to hunt the elephant for his ivory. Yet we found them to be a fine race, and well armed, and seemingly capable by their numbers and arms to compete with any tribe. But here, as elsewhere, disunion makes them weak. They are mere small colonies, each colony ruled by its own chief, whereas, were they united, they might make a very respectable front before an enemy. Our next destination was Masalalo, a distant fifteen miles from Kiti. Hamad, after vainly searching for his runaways and the valuable property he had lost, followed us, and tried once more, when he saw us encamped at Masalalo, to pass us. But his pagazis failed him, the march having been so long. Weld Nagarezo was reached on the 15th, after three and a half hours' march. It is a flourishing place, where provisions were almost twice as cheap as they were at Unyambogi. Two hours' march south is Jewel la Mokoa, on the old road, towards which the road which we have been travelling since leaving Bagamoyo was now rapidly leading. Unyanyembe being near, the pagazis and soldiers, having behaved excellently during the lengthy marches we had lately made, I purchased a bullock for three doti, and had it slaughtered for their special benefit. I also gave each a ket of red beads to indulge his appetite for whatever little luxury the country afforded. Milk and honey were plentiful, and three fasala of sweet potatoes were bought for a shukah, equal to about forty cents of our money. The thirteenth of June brought us to the last village of Maganda Makali, in the district of Jiwalasinga, after a short march of eight miles and three-quarters. Kasuri, so called by the Arabs, is called Kansuli by the Wakimbu who inhabit it. This is, however, but one instance out of many where the Arabs have misnamed or corrupted the native names of villages and districts. Between Nagarezo and Kasuri we passed the village of Kururumo, now a thriving place, with many a thriving village near it. As we passed it, the people came out to greet the Masungu, whose advent had been so long heralded by his loud-mouthed caravans, and whose soldiers had helped them win the day in a battle against their fractious brothers of Jiwa Lemakoa. A little further on we came across a large kambi, occupied by a Sultan bin Mohammed, an Omani Arab of high descent, who, as soon as he was notified of my approach, came out to welcome me, and invited me to his kambi. As his harem lodged in his tent, of course I was not invited thither, but a carpet outside was ready for his visitor. After the usual questions had been asked about my health, the news of the road, the latest from Zanzibar and Oman, 
he asked me if I had much cloth with me. This was a question often asked by owners of down caravans, and the reason of it is that the Arabs, in their anxiety to make as much as possible of their cloth at the ivory ports on the Tanganyika and elsewhere, are liable to forget that they should retrain a portion for the down marches. As, indeed, I had but a bale left of the quantity of cloth retained for provisioning my party on the road, when outfitting my caravans on the coast, I could unblushingly reply in the negative. I halted a day at Kasuri to give my caravan a rest, after its long series of marches, before venturing on the two days' march through the uninhabited wilderness that separates the district of Jiwa Lasinga Uyuza from the district of Tura in Unyanyembe. Hamad proceeded, promising to give Said ben Salim notice of my coming, and to request him to provide a tembe for me. On the 15th, having ascertained that Sheikh Thani would be detained several days at Kasuri, owing to the excessive number of his people who were laid up with that dreadful plague of East Africa, the smallpox, I bade him farewell, and my caravan struck out of Kasuri once more for the wilderness and the jungle. A little before noon we halted at the Kambi of Magongo Tembo, or the Elephant's Back, so called from a wave of rock whose back, stained into dark brownness by atmospheric influences, is supposed by the natives to resemble the blue-brown back of this monster of the forest. My caravan had quite an argument with me here, as to whether we should make the Terekeza on this day or on the next. The majority was of the opinion that the next day would be the best for a Terekeza, but I, being the Bana, consulting my own interests, insisted, not without a flourish or two of my whip, that the Terekeza should be made on this day. Magongo Tembo, when Burton and Speke passed by, was a promising settlement, cultivating many a fair acre of ground. But two years ago war broke out, for some bold act of its people upon caravans, and the Arabs came from Unyanyembe with their Wangwana servants, attacked them, burnt the villages, and laid waste the work of years. Since that time Magongo Tembo has been but blackened wrecks of houses, and the fields a sprouting jungle." A cluster of date-palms, overtopping a dense grove close to the Matani of Mogongo Tembo, revived my recollections of Egypt. The banks of the stream, with their verdant foliage, presented a strange contrast to the brown and dry appearance of the jungle, which lay on either side. At one p.m. we resumed our loads and walking-staffs, and in a short time were en route for the Nguala Matoni, distant eight and three-quarters miles from the Kambi. The sun was hot, like a globe of living, seething flame. It flared its heat full on our heads. Then, as it descended towards the west, scorched the air before it was inhaled by the lungs which craved it. Gourds of water were emptied speedily to quench the fierce heat that burned the throat and lungs. One pagazi, stricken heavily with the smallpox, succumbed, and threw himself down on the roadside to die. We never saw him afterwards, for the progress of a caravan on a terrakeza is something like that of a ship in a hurricane. The caravan must proceed. Woe befall him who lags behind, for hunger and thirst will overtake him. So must a ship drive before the fierce gale to escape foundering. Woe befall him who falls overboard. An abundance of water, good, sweet, and cool, was found in the bed of the Matoni in deep, stony reservoirs. Here also the traces of furious torrents were clearly visible, as at Mungunguru. The Nguala commences in Ubanarama to the north, a country famous for its fine breed of donkeys, and after running south, south-southwest, crosses the Unyanyembe road, from which point it has more of a westerly turn. On the 16th we arrived at Maradida, 
so called from a village which was, but is now no more. Maradida is twelve and a half miles from the Nguala Matoni. A pool of good water a few hundred yards from the roadside is the only supply caravans can obtain, nearer than Tura in Unyamwezi. The tsitsi, or chafwa fly, as called by the Waswahili, stung us dreadfully, which is a sign that large game visit the pool sometimes, but must not be mistaken for an indication that there is any in the immediate neighborhood of the water. A single pool so frequented by passing caravans, which must of necessity halt here, could not be often visited by the animals of the forest, who are shy in this part of Africa of the haunts of men. At dawn the next day we were on the road striding at a quicker pace than on most days, since we were about to quit Magundamali for the more populated and better land of Unyamwezi. The forest held its own for a wearisome long time, but at the end of two hours it thinned, then dwarfed into a low jungle, and finally vanished altogether, and we had arrived on the soil of Umyamwezi, with a broad plain, swelling, subsiding, and receding in lengthy and grand undulations in our front, to one indefinite horizon line, which purpled in the far distance. The few consisted of fields of grain ripening, which followed the contour of the plain, and which rustled merrily before the morning breeze that came laden with the chills of Usagara. At eight a.m. we had arrived at the frontier village of Umnyamwezi, eastern Tura, which we invaded without any regard to the disposition of the few inhabitants who lived there. Here we found Nando, a runaway of Speaks, one of those who had sided with Baraka against Bombay, who, desiring to engage himself with me, was engaging enough to furnish honey and sherbet to his former companions, and lastly to the Pagazis. It was only a short breathing pause we made here, having another hour's march to reach central Tura. The road from eastern Tura led through vast fields of millet, Indian corn, hulcus sorghum, mawari, or panicum, or bajri, as called by Arabs, gardens of sweet potatoes, large tracts of cucumbers, watermelons, mushmelons, and peanuts which grew in the deep furrows between the ridges of the hulcus. Some broad-leafed plantain plants were also seen in the neighborhood of the villages, which, as we advanced, became very numerous. The villages of the Wakimbu are like those of the Wagogo, square, flat-roofed, enclosing an open area, which is sometimes divided into three or four parts by fences or matamastok. At central Tura, where we encamped, we had evidence enough of the rascality of the Wakimbu of Tura. Hamad, who, despite his efforts to reach Unyanyembe in time to sell his cloths before other Arabs came with cloth supplies, was unable to compel his bagazis to the double march every day, was also encamped at central Tura, together with the Arab servants who preferred Hamad's imbecile haste to Thani's cautious advance. Our first night in Unyamwezi was very exciting indeed. The Masungu's camp was visited by two crawling thieves, but they were soon made aware by the portentous click of a trigger that the white man's camp was well guarded. Hamad's camp was next visited, but here also the restlessness of the owner frustrated their attempts, for he was pacing backwards and forwards through his camp, with a loaded gun in his hand, and the thieves were obliged to relinquish the chance of stealing any of his bales. From Hamad's they proceeded to Hassan's camp, one of the Arab servants, where they were successful enough to reach and lay hold of a couple of bales, but unfortunately they made a noise, which awoke the vigilant and quick-eared slave, who snatched his loaded musket, and in a moment had shot one of them through the heart. Such were our experiences of the Wakimbu of Tura. 
On the 18th the three caravans, Hamad's, Hassan's, and my own, left Tura by a road which zigzagged towards all points through the Talmatama fields. In an hour's time we had passed Tura Pero, or western Tura, and had entered the forest again, whence the Wakimbu of Tura obtain their honey, and where they excavate deep traps for the elephants with which the forest is said to abound. An hour's march from western Tura brought us to Aziwa, or pond. There were two, situated in the midst of a small open mabuga, or plain, which, even at this late season, was yet soft from the water which overflows it during the rainy season. After resting three hours, we started on the Terrakeza, or afternoon march. It was one in the same forest that we had entered soon after leaving western Tura, that we travelled through until we reached the Koala Matoni, or as Burton has misnamed it on his map, Koala. The water of this Matoni is contained in large ponds, or deep depressions in the wide and crooked gully of Koala. In these ponds a species of mudfish was found, of one of which I made a meal, by no means to be despised by one who had not tasted fish since leaving Bagamoyo. Probably, if I had my choice, being, when occasion demands it, rather fastidious in my tastes, I would not select the mudfish. From Tura to the Koala Matoni is seventeen and a half miles, a distance which, however easy it may be traversed once a fortnight, assumes a prodigious length when one has to travel it almost every other day, at least so my pagazis, soldiers, and followers found it, and their murmurs were loud when I ordered the signal to be sounded on the march. Abdul Qadir, the tailor who had attached himself to me, as a man ready-handed at all things, from mending a pair of pants, making a delicate entremont, or suiting an elephant, but whom the interior proved to be the weakliest of the weakly, unfit for anything except eating and drinking, almost succumbed on this march. Long ago the little stock of goods which Abdul had brought from Zanzibar folded in a pocket-handkerchief, and with which he was about to buy ivory and slaves, and make his fortune in the famed land of Unyamwezi, had disappeared with the great eminent hopes he had built on them, like those of Al-Nashar, the unfortunate owner of crockery in the Arabian tale. He came to me as we prepared for the march, with a most dolorous tale about his approaching death, which he felt in his bones, and weary back. His legs would barely hold him up. In short, he had utterly collapsed. Would I take mercy on him, and let him depart? The cause of this extraordinary request, so unlike the spirit with which he had left Zanzibar, eager to possess the ivory and slaves of Unyamwezi, was that on the long last march, two of my donkeys being dead, I had ordered that the two saddles which they had carried should be Abdul Qadir's load to Unyanyembi. The weight of the saddles was sixteen pounds, as the spring balance scale indicated, yet Abdul Qadir became weary of life, as he counted the long marches that intervened between the Matoni and the Unyanyembi. On the ground he fell prone, to kiss my feet, begging me in the name of God to permit him to depart. As I had some experience of Hindus, Malabaris, and Coolies in Abyssinia, I knew exactly how to deal with a case like this. Unhesitatingly I granted the request as soon as asked, for as much tired as Abdul Qadir said he was of life, I was with Abdul Qadir's worthlessness. But the Hindi did not want to be left in the jungle, he said, but after arriving in Unanyembi. Oh, said I, then you must reach Unanyembi first, in the meanwhile you will carry those saddles there for the food which you must eat. As the march to Rabuga was eighteen and three-quarters miles, the pagazis walked fast and long without resting. Rabuga, in the days of Burton, according to his book, was a prosperous district. 
even when we passed, the evidences of wealth and prosperity which it possessed formerly were plain enough in the wide extent of its grain-fields, which stretched to the right and left of the Unyanyembe road for many a mile. But they were the only evidences of what once were numerous villages, a well-cultivated and populous district, rich in herds of cattle and stores of grain. All the villages are burnt down, the people have been driven north three or four days from Rabuga, the cattle were taken by force, the grain-fields were left standing to be overgrown with jungle and rank weeds. We passed village after village that had been burnt, and were mere blackened heaps of charred timber and smoked clay. Field after field of ripe grain years ago was yet standing in the midst of a crop of gums and thorns, mimosa and coquall. We arrived at the village, occupied by about sixty wangwana, who have settled here to make a living by buying and selling ivory. Food is provided for them in the deserted fields of the people of Urbuga. We were very tired and heated from the long march, but the pagazis had all arrived by 3 p.m. At the Wangwana village we met Amir ben Sultan, the very type of old Arab sheikh, such as we read of in books, with a snowy beard and a clean, reverend face, who was returning to Zanzibar after a ten years' residence in Unanyembe. He presented me with a goat, and a goat-skin full of rice, a most acceptable gift in a place where a goat costs five cloths. After a day's halt at Rabuga, during which I dispatched two soldiers to notify Sheikh Said bin Salim and Sheikh bin Nasib, the two chief dignitaries of Unyanyembe, of my coming, on the 21st of June we resumed the march for Kigwa, distant five hours. The road ran through another forest similar to that which separated Tura from Rabuga, the country rapidly sloping as we proceeded westward. Kigwa we found to have been visited by the same vengeance which rendered Rabuga such a waste. The next day, after three and a half hours' rapid march, we crossed the Matoni, which was no Matoni, separating Kigwa from the Unyanyembe district, and after a short halt to quench our thirst, in three and a half hours more arrived at Shiza. It was a most delightful march, though a long one, for its picturesqueness of scenery, which every few minutes was revealed, and the proofs everywhere we saw of the peaceful and industrious disposition of the people. A short hour and a half from Shiza we beheld the undulating plain wherein the Arabs have chosen to situate the central depot which commands such a wide and extensive field of trade. The lowing of cattle and the bleeding of the goats and sheep were everywhere heard, giving the country a happy pastoral aspect. The Sultan of Shiza desired me to celebrate my arrival in Unyanyembe with a five-gallon jar of pombe, which he brought for that purpose. As the pombe was but stale ale in taste, and milk and water in color, after drinking a small glassful I passed it to the delighted soldiers and pagazis. At my request the sultan brought a fine, fat bullock, for which he accepted four and a half doti of Marikani. The bullock was immediately slaughtered and served out to the caravan as a farewell feast. No one slept much that night, and long before the dawn the fires were lit, and great steaks were broiling, that their stomachs might rejoice before parting with the Masungu, whose bounty they had so often tasted. Six rounds of powder were served to each soldier, and Pagazi, who owned a gun, to fire away when we should be near the Arab houses. The meanest Pagazi had his best cloth about his loins, and some were exceedingly brave in gorgeous Ulya, Kombiza, Pagonga, and crimson Jawa, the glossy Rahani, and the neat Dabwani. The soldiers were mustered in new tarbushes, and the long white shirts of the Marima and the island. For this was the great and happy day which had been on our tongues ever since quitting the coast, 
for which we had made those noted marches latterly, one hundred and seventy-eight and a half miles in sixteen days, including pauses, something over eleven miles a day. The signal sounded, and the caravan was joyfully off, with banners flying and trumpets and horns blaring. A short two and a half hours march brought us within sight of Quikura, which is about two miles south of Tabora, the main Arab town, on the outside of which we saw a long line of men in clean shirts, whereat we opened our charged batteries and fired a volley of small arms, such as Quikura seldom heard before. The Pagazis closed up and adopted the swagger of veterans. The soldiers blazed away uninterruptedly, while I, seeing that the Arabs were advancing towards me, left the ranks and held out my hand, which was immediately grasped by Sheikh Said bin Salim, and then by about two dozen people, and thus our entree into Unyanyembe was effected. End of chapter 7, part 4